0: old school coming at you live on saturday morning well not live when you hear this but it was live for us at some point so um we say good morning to hair doctor bourgeois
1: here miller good to see you there i know you're not in texas because you sound far away where the heck are you
0: uh i am in the bustling city of topeka kansas why are you so, laughing so, Well, no one's topeka,
1: you're casting aspersions this
0: early and your in-laws are there is that right well, my in-laws are there. My in-laws are here. They've been here ever since I first started dating my very uh, lovely bride. Um, so you laugh because Topeka just knows what it is. And it's not what it would like to be, perhaps. But it is what it is. So it's a small provincial capital in the hinterlands of the United States and the flyover country. So, the flyover
1: now that's not <laughs> nice either it's a shot right shot yeah no 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 one would call Texas a flyover country you know no,
0: because it's not it's a it's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a place of of certain economic cultural and political import um none of which I'm not sure you could say honestly about to Kansas these are very fine people I love being here I love hanging out here it's kind of a cool vibe. But let's not kid ourselves okay so they bribe you to there, basically <laughs> baseball and the fact that they're very lovely people and there's good food here so what are you gonna do there you go yeah, so
1: well um i think we want to introduce our guest right away because he can save us from this conversation about kansas <laughs> um, we tried to do this about two weeks ago exactly two weeks ago with uh, mr paul dr paul and my, my apologies we'll edit that out because that's an important <laughs> one. with dr paul weinhold so um i'm going to introduce paul um and just we'll get into all everything about uh dr weinhold but um he um i met him through great hearts um america which is a national charter organization and paul is the director of continuing education and a, a good friend um, so welcome to the show. Welcome back,
0: Paul. Hey guys, good to see you all again. Great to be here. Well, now we do we do have something to tackle before, no pun intended, uh before we get started. I have I, I want because because Paul is a devoted baseball fan and you sir are a devoted sports fan. I wanted to throw something out there before we got into the meat of the discussion today. So two weeks ago. Uh, The Atlanta Braves were playing the Colorado Rockies in Denver, Colorado. And the Braves have this amazing outfielder by the name of Ronald Acuna Jr. And during the game, one guy came out of the stands, seemingly grabbing Acuna to take a photo, a selfie of some sort. And that was followed shortly thereafter by another guy who seemed to be much more aggressive. And the the security immediately put both guys face down on the ground and were, were not too subtle about the fact that these two boys had crossed the line. Now, this is kind of a, this is kind of similar to what happened last year. See, you might recall Monday night football, the Rams were playing the 49ers. Bobby, some guy ran out into the field with a flare smoke thing, and the linebacker, Bobby Wagner, uh, said hello in a very abrupt and put him in, the floor, in, the, in, the, in the Right in, in the flare into the field. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nearly buried him. Um, and so some of the commentary, both after the Wagner hit, but then also after what happened on uh, a couple of weeks ago, was whether the the kind of the over-exuberance of security was warranted. You think about someone like Messi. For those of you who don't know, Messi, the famous soccer player, plays the Inter-Miami He actually has a Navy SEAL guy that basically shadows him on the field at all times, running up and down as Messi moves, so that if anything happens, if anyone comes on the field, this guy is on the field right away. Do you think it is fair game for any fan who walks on the field that they're going to get hit and hit hard? Do you think that that's fair, or do you think that security or other people should take more of a nuanced case-by-case approach?
2: Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll chime in here. Um, I'm thinking about a couple of different examples of people running out onto the field, right? Like one would be the, the college football, like everybody's running out onto the field in celebration of a win, right? Sure. Or college basketball that happens too. I think that's different. Um, Cause it's, it's everybody it's exuberant. Uh, actually still, still dangerous potentially still dangerous that is true but there's just something about that that I would want to be able to retain you know right um and then there was there was a lovely moment uh back do you remember well yeah I don't remember I don't know whether you guys would remember this I certainly don't remember it I remember seeing uh a film of it like of uh Hank Aaron's uh I saw that
1: I saw it live when it happened
2: yeah like and that was a moment that was another one of these like tense moments like you're talking
0: about where it's like what what are they going to do you know. Um, what made that si- what made that situation worse is that Aaron had received a lot of death threats prior to breaking yeah. the Ruth record. Yeah, exactly. So, um
2: so it's one of those like iconic moments in the history of baseball. Right. Uh and it it ended up being fine um but but anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying. Actually, yeah, I'm okay if a security guard just <laughs> just flattens someone who gets who runs out onto the field. In cases like you're talking about, I just think, uh, look, it's it's the field of play. Like the yeah. whole thing that we're doing here is watching a, a game that's supposed to be played by the people on the field. You're not supposed right. to be a part of that. So mm. you st- you cross that line, I'm okay with you know some physical violence against you I agree with all
1: of that I mean I go back uh to watching the great Monica Salas that was just over 30 years ago yes and so you don't know what these people are going to do you don't know if they're armed or what you know and she was stabbed while at the changeover sitting down and and essentially ruined her career and she yes. was at the top of the pyramid and she would have history was changed on that moment you know she would have probably had more grand slams than steffi graf and anybody else um but you just don't know and i but you know people are so used to being involved now with the social media and they get to give their opinions and everything but there there, there has to be some physical boundary so I, I think that one good development is that television coverage, you know, goes away, they don't show it. And they started right. They stopped that a long time ago. I think that's a, that was a good move. Um, right. But it was a nicer age back in the 70s, where people would actually streak, you know, they take their clothes off and run into the field. <laughs> and, you know, it was it more funny when they were tackled.
0: Or you have Morgana, you know, it's this kind of innocent, you know, everyone yeah. kind of agrees that this, yeah. this is okay, you know, sort of thing. You know, this is not like, well, right after the sellers thing that Kansas City coach got Knocked down by two kids from uh, the Chicago White Sox, the south side of Chicago. And they were beating that guy up for about three seconds before the rest of the Royals descended upon those two guys. And it was a very unpleasant encounter for them after that. But I think, I I think the, yeah, you cannot, you can't be sure. And in lieu of certainty, you have to operate under the worst case possible scenario. So, but these are the stories. These are the stories that uh that define and sometimes uh highlight sports. And these are the kind of stories that often make up great literature, you know, conflict, tension, these sort of things. And what about what about
2: wedding what about engagements? Like on the field proposals and this sort of thing. What do you guys <laughs> think about that?
1: Jumbotron and some Yeah.
2: There's <laughs> some drama there, you know? <laughs> Yeah, there's drama there.
0: It's tension.
1: (laughs) Definitely awkward. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea to do it, first of all. I mean, of all the places, you know, in public, especially when you don't really know the answer, that's pretty risky.
0: Yeah. I I also think about the comedian Bill Burr. He gets upset when and whenever there's something that's introduced within the realm of sports that comes from real life, you know, that a lot of times we watch sports to get away from real life. Now, a proposal is not as... Is not as perhaps, uh, it's maybe more innocuous than, say, some sort of political stance or some sort of uh, social stance or what have you. But I think, you know, for him, he always said that, you know, he likes sports to be sports. He doesn't want other stuff kind of intruding into that space because that's why we watch sports.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I do like it when the guy gets rejected. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. I don't know. I, should, I, I do have to do. for everybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sort of
2: shade and Freud
1: or something. Indeed. So, Herr Miller, you were transitioning. You mentioned literature, and, and I think that that's where we wanted to start out. We could, when we have um, Paul Weinhold on, um, we could go in so many directions. Indeed. And, uh, and and so we think this is the first of many podcasts with with, with Paul, but um, he has um, unique expertise. Uh, recently completing a, a PhD um, from uh, University of Dallas, and um, can can you tell us a little bit about that degree? What you know, what, what you studied, and what you what you did to to secure the the title and and the all the knowledge you gained.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I always tell people the best things in my life, uh, came from the university of Dallas, uh, and, um, and it's a really unique, um, doctoral program, uh, to my knowledge, it's the only doctoral program in the country with a core curriculum and great books. Uh, so there are, there are three concentrations in the program. Uh, there's a concentration in politics, uh, a concentration in philosophy and one in literature. Uh, and i I concentrated in literature. Um, but everyone from all three concentrations uh, takes a sequence of courses uh, in you know great books of the Western tradition. Um, so there's a course on, um, Homer and Virgil, Plato and Aristotle, Augustine and Aquinas, um, Hegel, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, um, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau. Um, and so you're reading the same texts together with people who are also reading those texts, but they are coming at them from you know a slightly different vantage point. Um, and so that was just an incredibly fruitful time for me. Uh, It's where I met my wife. Um, It's where uh, I just learned a ton about uh, about the the history and culture of the West. um, And built incredible friendships with people uh, during my time there as well. So and I I got to study uh, Shakespeare under a lot of people actually, because um, at UD, everybody in the English department wants to teach Shakespeare. <laughs> so I got to, uh, learn from primarily from Dr. Scott Kreider, uh, who is a, a professor in the English department there, uh, author of, uh, a book called the office of assertion. Um, and uh, also a, a author of a, a book called with what persuasion and, and his, um, uh, point of emphasis is, uh, Shakespeare's uh rhetorical ethics like, like how do you how do you uh properly persuade someone uh of something how do you lead their soul well uh toward the the true the good and the beautiful um also studied under uh Gerald and Gerard Wegemer who uh, is a Thomas Moore scholar uh and taught a fantastic course called Shakespeare's histories um as well as Andrew Moran who uh uh, taught me a course on um, early modern, uh, early modern drama. Um, yeah, and I, I could go on
1: about the professors there. They're,
2: they're outstanding, but um, just a really formative experience
1: in my life. Well, uh, tell us about the the final piece, um, because you were, you were in there for a while, and you, you, you knocked this thing out, which was, I don't know if people, there's, it's a different type of a uh, it, it's not called a dissertation it's a treatise and it's a little bit different i mean it's a lot longer and than a dissertation in, in um, where you do a study <clears throat> that's what you tend to do in, in, in education where you can conduct some type of research and show that you can do a study from the beginning to end but but in this case you're doing research through um, documents is that correct
2: yeah. So I guess I'm not super familiar with other fields. Like, what is it like in other fields? I mean, is well, it just it, like it. what I wrote was longer? Or?
1: No, they t- they tend, if it's a quantitative study, it, it tends to be relatively short, you know, 125 pages maps, and, and, and you do some type of original research you know you send out surveys or you do interviews and and then you so you deal with a lot of data and report it and but, but it's very structured you know you have a you know you have a, a chapter or you introduce the problem and then a full literature review chapter you talk about your methodology then you present your results which could be a bunch of tables or a bunch of quotes from people depending on the approach you take and you tie it all together, so it's very much structured. Everybody
0: does practically the same the same steps. Mm, yeah, and, and in his, and in history, it's a you know you, you don't have that kind of that uh, explicit explanation, but within it, you know, in telling a story and exploring a story or exploring a part of a story, you are also showcasing various things that everyone has to be able to show that they're capable of doing, primarily. We're just simply talking about independent research but the notion of being able to create a defensible argument um not that it's correct not that it makes sense but if you're able to make an argument and and defend it that tends to be some of the aspects that you find within the realm of history
2: yep yep well and it's similar in literature too i mean there's definitely an argument that you've got to pursue um but but less of a template although there are some general guidelines, I suppose. Um, but yeah, certainly no, I, I didn't do a, you know, quantifiable, uh, there were no tables um, uh, in my, in my research, although it's interesting, uh, well, we'll, well, we'll get into it. But uh, what I wrote on was um, Shakespeare's use of logic in an early uh, narrative poem that he wrote called Lucrece. And um, it's an eighteen hundred line poem, uh, narrative poem, one of these like mini epics that were written in the in the fifteen nineties. Um, it was incredibly popular during his uh, during his life, sold very well, uh, and was a companion piece to another uh, earlier, uh, even earlier poem that he wrote called Venus and Adonis. Um, so the the basic argument was that um, in the same way that that other people have written about Shakespeare's rhetoric, uh, including my professor uh, that is studying the the various forms and figures that Shakespeare used to uh, to craft his masterpieces. Um, I, I looked at the forms and figures of logic uh, rather than the forms and figures of rhetoric, and it turns out uh, that that just wasn't something that that had been you know, not much had been done in that area. Um. In part because I suspect in part because gosh, the logical treatises are uh are really difficult to come by. They're difficult to read, not only the content, but also just the format of them. Um, you know, they're all in like early modern typeface and um only available uh through this it's a really great resource. It's called early uh early English books online, E E B O. That's right. Um so i was like scrolling through all these documents and trying to transcribe them into readable yeah. uh fonts uh and doing that kind of work um and um and yeah that, that's what i wrote about so i i uh basically the argument was uh that shakespeare is clearly uh well educated in uh, logical categories and uh, processes um that there are you know noticeable traces of that in his writing um and that he had an audience in mind uh of people who were also well trained in logic uh and and that he is like clearly playing with those categories in the in the poem uh, Lucrece
0: with regards to Shakespeare you know everyone has this preconceived notion i think of what shakespeare is or who shakespeare was because they They've heard of Hamlet, they've heard of, you know, these various things. And when you get into some of these lesser known works, lesser known from a kind of a layman's perspective, what are people missing about Shakespeare that a more studied individual already knows or knows about him? What makes him different that maybe someone else from the outside doesn't get? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, one thing is
2: that uh Shakespeare Shakespeare didn't write Hamlet right away. He didn't write right. The Tempest right away. You know, that there are um, especially in the early plays and some of these early works, they're they're outstanding, right? Like in comparison to his contemporaries, they're just like seven or eight cuts above. Um but when you compare those to his later plays, his more mature tragedies, um, you can see that, you know, he's he's working some things out with his craftsmanship. So for example, in Lacris, um, oftentimes it's um it's uh, criticized for, for being a poem that um just has way too flowery of language. You know, he sort of has this tendency to to chase a metaphor and to make it as complex as possible early in his career um so there's that you can you can begin to see the development of an artist by looking at these these early works um, or these lesser lesser known uh works um that's definitely one thing
1: yeah it's it's something i'm I'm speaking in terms of music um that you you don't think about early and late bach necessarily but but the, but it, it it has to happen you, know, you look in the i mean some composers like mozart had a I i mean you can look in that last period and it's very different and and they kind of he simplified if anything um but um you know shakespeare I think it's a great point. It seems that we picture Shakespeare fully formed almost this God on Earth putting these, these works that you know, to think about a, the development it had to happen.
2: Yeah, and you can also see artists kind of working things out in their own minds by returning to the same subject again, you know, um, so that that you can start to see with Lucrece because Lucrece pops up, or, or elements of that same story pop up, um, in different places, uh, in the, in the plays, uh, as well. So, um, you know, you even see this with, uh, you know, filmmakers, right? They'll just, they'll, they're just doing the same thing. I'm thinking about like Wes Anderson films right now. Like, you know, he's always <laughs> interested in these spaces, you know, and like, uh, uh, family dynamics and um the dialogue is often uh has the same feel to it so um it's interesting to watch someone over the course of their career kind of uh get more um i don't know detailed or or create even more complex and interesting manifestations of the same thing
1: um yeah. so paul are you familiar with probably uh, harold bloom and the western canon um, because he talks <clears throat> so much about Shakespeare as really the center of the canon.
2: Yeah, he wrote this book called um, Invention of the Human.
1: Yeah, that, that, yep. and and but essentially talking about you know the the psychology um, is is what happens in those soliloquies and things that I mean that's the jump forward and that you you don't really capture that in, in much that came before or even after.
2: Right. Yeah. So the soliloquies are interesting and you see that in the too. Like that seems to be something that Shakespeare, um, like for example, he invents a soliloquy for, for Tarquin, uh, early on in the, in that poem that it's not in any of the source texts. He just Mm -hmm. has this dramatic sensibility where he realizes a soliloquy is an opportunity to, um, put on display, right? Like, the inner thoughts and feelings of a person, so that you have this, um, this window, the audience or the reader gets this window into a person's psyche. Uh, And, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating uh, innovation. uh, And something that uh, Shakespeare certainly didn't invent the soliloquy, but he, uh, he he, probably, he definitely I think
1: perfected it you know yeah well, there, there's a whole field of <clears throat> of criticism people doing a say a Freudian interpretation of, of Shakespeare there, there's so much there you're looking at it almost post hoc but in, you know, the the influence seems to go both ways between Freud and Shakespeare in in a way I mean obviously it can't be both ways but um but yeah no I get what you mean yeah I just wonder how much you know the, the psychologists learned from reading that
2: oh I bet he did and and the thing is that um no matter where you are in history like you're looking at the human being you know and you're trying to figure that out and so many people in the history of certainly in the West, which is what I've studied, like, um, they're noticing the same things and and pointing up different, uh, aspects, you know, of, of the human person. And so, yeah, whether it's a psychologist like Freud or, or a dramatist like Shakespeare, uh, all of those things are going to come to the surface and, and, uh, with, you know, geniuses, uh, that's going to be um there's going to be a commonality between all of them that's for sure
1: yeah
0: when you look at some of the stuff that he wrote and some of the ways in which it's studied and you two have already kind of mentioned some of them be it logic or philosophy or you know what have you what was his intent as he wrote this stuff was he intending to try to write something that that spoke specifically on logic was he trying specifically to write something that spoke to some elements of philosophy or was he just an individual who was a writer who wanted to write who had a desire to write and probably also make money at the same time and he wrote these things as a kind of those first steps in doing so or did he have a larger plan in mind yeah oh man
2: there's so much there um (laughs) so he certainly needed to make a living and he certainly wanted to entertain that was part and parcel of the work that he was doing and that meant entertaining um, multiple audiences, whether you're talking about, um, you know, plebeians or uh, royalty, uh, nobility, and also importantly, an audience uh, from a, 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 a society called the Inns of Court, which was, a, 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 think of them like social clubs for lawyers, right? Um, so okay. these were people who were really well-educated, university-educated, et cetera. So you had that, like there was this entertainment side. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can also see in in like, for example, his history plays, you can see that there's a definite um, purpose to them and a, a thoughtfulness about the history of England. And put when you're putting a people's own history on display for them to think about, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's a that that can't just be purely entertainment, right, because they're pondering their own past and their own origins. And they're pondering, they're, they're being required to ponder their own um, system of government. You know, and so uh, you can see him um, uh, bringing, his, he's bringing his audience through that um, experience I think in a very purposeful way uh, Mm -hmm. to help them uh, see the need for Um, Mm self-government and and to also ponder like what what's the nature of tyranny (laughs) you know how does one how does one deal with a tyrant Um, Mm -hmm. those are all definitely important questions questions about the nature of love uh of romantic love and uh, of um you know partnerships that are are uh likely to continue well into the future uh and ones that aren't Uh, that you certainly see him uh, presenting different options uh, never in a way that's like a lecture or or that provides like shakespeare's answer to this question but Mm -hmm. he's always trying to um put those things to, to bring before his audience or his readers eyes, the various possibilities and to show some of them working out better than others. <laughs> and implicit is maybe you should choose the ones
0: that are going to work <laughs> out better. <Let's> hope so. <laughs> Would you say that that's part of his relevance today? I mean, not that, you know, no one, no one needs to hear from me about why Shakespeare is relevant today, but I mean do you think that that's why he still resonates is because of what he touches on and how he does it yeah i think it's interesting i mean he's
2: you know performed uh more often than probably any other playwright uh whether you're talking about high school productions or you know out here in phoenix we've got the southwest shakespeare company um and a variety of interpretations right so one one thing about shakespeare is that um his language seems to be able to capture so many different um dramatic interpretations by the actors i mean you know that it's just a, a playground for <laughs> for them <laughs> that allows them to be creative in a way that's just uh I mean you, you can't quantify it. Um, so so that's one one thing. Uh, and then I think Shakespeare uh, is always able to capture um, to to dwell, I should say, on a, a particular um emotion or a particular moment of dramatic tension and just really, where other dramatists or, or filmmakers even will sort of brush past it and not, and not sit with the complexity of that moment. Um, Shakespeare will, will force his audience to, to really look at it closely. And I think that's powerful because people want a connection, um, to these, these moments, they want to engage their sympathies. Um, and, and Shakespeare provides those opportunities, so that's a human kind of connection that goes beyond, you know, the particular history of a particular nation, um, or or goes beyond um, any sort of, um, I don't know, ideological notions or philosophies. It's just something that's very visceral and human that we want to to connect with. And then, of course, now that we're in a tradition that's been informed by Shakespeare. Um, so much of the literature that has occurred after him has referred back to his stories and so it's part of the rich fabric of who we are um and yeah that i mean he does continue to resonate
1: (laughs) yeah for sure so we're all in education on k-12 specifically and um You mentioned dwelling, and I mean, that sounds like a whole book right there. There's so many (laughs) examples of that, um, and it it seems to be something that's missing in our culture today. We tend to brush through everything and play music as background to other things. Um, But what about using, you know, teaching Shakespeare, not abridged texts or little summaries, but actually teaching Shakespeare in in schools? Um, Can you give me some examples of maybe what you do at great hearts and what you think about it
2: sure yeah i think we should do it um we should do that <laughs> <it> as <laughs> much as good possible, possible. Um, well there you
1: go that's the right there <laughs> yeah
2: yeah yeah I, I think shakespeare is um really powerful for young people uh and it and it's just so enjoyable in a class uh to read shakespeare aloud. Um, to, uh, experience Shakespeare performed by, uh, professional actors, you know, whether on film or going to visit a live performance. Um, so I was talking with a teacher recently who does something super interesting. Um, she is a drama. Is she teaching drama or humane letters? I can't remember now. Um, I think it's, it may be a humane letters class, but her classroom just happens to be right next to a um, another room that's used for um, drama, right? So she'll have a seminar with her students where they're all talking about, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet, say. And then there'll be a question about, uh, how do we interpret this line? And then the answer will be, well, let's try and interpret it this way And then we'll try and interpret it another way by going over to this room next to us and we'll actually just perform it. And so the, the test of interpretation is can you perform it or not? Like, does it work or not? (laughs) It's it's so fascinating to, to have a class where you're, you're not just, uh, you know, it's certainly not a lecture about the text. It's not a seminar about, it's not merely a seminar about the text but it's also including this performance aspect. you can only do that with dramatic works and uh
0: so it moves beyond theory and goes towards makes it a practical practice. exploration. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 100%. Um so yeah, you can do that kind of stuff with Shakespeare. Um and Shakespeare's poetry uh you know, it's the kind of thing that people want to memorize and and has certainly uh influenced um you know many thinkers in the west uh think about Abraham Lincoln watching Macbeth over and over again mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I think we should teach Shakespeare as much as possible to young people
0: wonderful now there was there's been some ahead, go ahead Ross now there's there's been some you know I was a fan of the show West Wing and there's an episode where uh, Martin Shane who plays the president refers to a modern translation of a text as the James Bond version I'm wondering do you do you feel that there is something inherently problematic with using uh more modern translations you know you see this a lot of times the conversation tends to center on the Bible where Jesus comes across more like a hipster than you know <laughs> like a prophet or what have you. Do you find that there there's an issue with doing it that way or do you think there's something inherently worthy about trying to understand the the text as it was originally constructed?
2: Yeah, I I've got to admit I'm a original text kind of guy. <laughs> uh I think
1: there's just something that
2: is lost um there's certainly you know meter and rhyme that may be lost in the the poem the, the poetry itself even in a, a drama it's often written in iambic pentameter and th- that's not insignificant to the work right like mm. and it, it comes down also to a um an understanding of what it is that we're doing or reading a work of literature or whether that's dramatic or a novel or a lyric poem or what have you, um, because a student or anyone might actually ask this question genuinely um, and not just being uh, being snarky, but they could ask, uh, well, why can't you just give me the summary of this? Like, if what I'm supposed to get out of this text, right, is I don't know, be a better person or right. some lesson about love or some lesson about happiness or what have you if that's what i'm supposed to get out of it then why can't i just get the prosaic sort of summary version of that and say thank you very much now i'm going to go change my life i promise i will (laughs) 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 i mean um why do i have to read this i don't know let's say it's Dostoevsky, like 500 page novel or something um and i think the answer is that uh, unless you go through the um, the imploded experience of reading through this story, uh, unless you have the engagement of your sympathies um, and and unless you uh, are experiencing the the language that is used in the story, then you're not experiencing the story anymore. Mm. Right. You're, you're just the, what you're doing is something else. And so it's important that to realize like, that literature and, and the, the experience of encountering it is something different than just than just extracting a lesson or a moral. Um, and that that experience is worth worth having uh, for its own sake. Um, and it, I think it also has salutary
1: effects for for us as human beings. I think about um, Walt Whitman, you know, and give me a give me a summary of this poem. And what kind of experience are you going to have at that point, you know, without the text? Shakespeare has been part of this long standing joke about how, you know, monkeys if given enough time could compose the complete works of Shakespeare. And now we're at that point where we have the monkeys Uh, (laughs) (laughs) away so can you defend shakespeare paul against the monkeys
2: yeah i I talked with a a colleague of mine who was a philosopher and he was telling me um that this was years ago so i probably misremember some of the details (laughs) but he was telling me that there were some graduate students that actually did a study of this very thing because you hear this all the time like you put enough monkeys in a room and they'll write Hamlet. Yeah. And that they were like, well, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> <In> the <typewriter. laughs> so they did. And, and it turned out that um the monkeys, they I think a line from the study was they really liked the F key.
1: <laughs> <Because they> just- <laughs>
2: Because they just hit the same button over
1: and over.
2: (laughs) And so, but the the study was actually making an important philosophical point about the difference between intelligence um, and uh, something else that monkeys have. I don't know what it would be, right? Like uh, some sort of cleverness or something, right? Like that, that there is, there's something that um, Shakespeare was doing when he was creating these stories that was the application of his intelligence to the source material, to um, you know the actors that he had to work with, the, the globe theater that he had to work with, and all of those factors, right, that he was applying that to those circumstances. Um, and then this isn't just sort of random events occurring over time, that intelligence
1: is something different than that um so (laughs) yeah so we don't need to worry about the robots and the chatbot um replacing but i think the challenge is to get people you know teach students and adults to to know the difference and and that that's the, the scarier part of the argument is is you know do you have access to shakespeare anymore
2: uh well yeah i guess in some ways we've never had more access to him in terms of just printed books and availability online and all of that. But, but yeah, the question is, do we have the kind of training, um, and, and just attention that is needed to, to do him justice? Um, those things are certainly under assault (laughs) for sure.
1: Yeah. It's very (laughs) nice listening to, to great classical music and they often take a little time them to you know the more you listen to them they become more meaningful and then you do this wonderful thing musically you start to anticipate what's what's going to come next and then you're in the moment and i think the same thing is when you're reading great literature you you need to be in a frame where you're anticipating then you're being delighted by what's different Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah that's right it's also that to go back to something you were saying earlier as far as like how do you teach uh shakespeare you know one of the things that i was kind of drawn to with the the the, the kid snarky or not who said you know what's the point of this that it turns shakespeare into like a, a a litany of pithy little sayings that become become kind of intermixed with lesser minds and you know lesser lesser talents and it really kind of reduces shakespeare to you know some sort of you know english version of fortune cookie you know kind of uh wit and witticisms um i mean should shakespeare be taught for its for the values that that they're found within or or as you said is is there something about going through the process itself that should be more stressed
2: yeah so i think you discover um the virtues that make for human flourishing by Um, watching the choices of the characters in his plays, right? Like, certainly not every character should be emulated, you know, right? Emulate Iago, um, Probably Not a good idea. Um, (laughs) And so uh, that process, it seems to me, is cultivating a kind of prudence in the reader um, because um one way to think about it is that, you know, as human beings, we get one life, you know, uh, but when you're reading Shakespeare and other great literature, you get a chance to see how other kinds of lives turn out and
0: mm-hmm. then learn
2: from the that and incorporate mm-hmm. it into the one life that you get to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's what I mean by sal- the salutary effect of it, right? Like, it's different than saying we just draw this moral lesson out of uh, a work of literature. That I don't think is right. But it's mm-hmm. not as though reading uh, great texts and-, and particularly imaginative texts, it's not as though that doesn't have um, an ethical uh, implication for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. So, um. It- I feel like we're just at the beginning of a conversation here, Um, and I I will admit to the audience that that we recorded two weeks ago, and we got into some very different things. You know, we had a whole different conversation talking about leadership, and, and it's a conversation that no one will hear, which has some philosophy behind that too. Does a <laughs> conversation with three people even occur if you don't hit record or gone <laughs> into the ether forever. Um, but we had it's a, in our memory. That's yeah. right. Yes. It's, it's some someplace. But um I wanna thank thank Paul. I think that we, we should um start here and, and continue this conversation and we want to learn a lot about um your work and about great hearts and schools and and um baseball. And I I think the reason that Ross wanted you on is because you all can, you know, team up on me now and and (laughs) both uh, whatever you would call it. Um you you love baseball. And I can't really make fun of two of you once because I'm outnumbered. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well hopefully this reverses the trend. So when we were talking last time, uh the Rangers were doing really well and I was very excited about them. And in the intervening period. They have hit a little bit of a slump, so we'll hope that they kick it back that's, into high gear. That's putting them. it
0: nicely, I think. Yeah, it is.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of falling apart right now. Yeah, it's hard.
0: possible. It's possible the two of you
1: jinxed them. You were overconfident. You'd, you, you, you but I don't know if you can unjinx
0: a team. Uh, maybe, maybe it, it happens. You never know. In is superstition, it, superstition works both ways. So I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm confident that. Uh, yeah. our commiseration is going to turn things around now okay so <laughs> now
2: this, this, <laughs> take anything. it's I'll a year anything. long it,
1: it used to be done in september or october it's like a year-round sport now it's going to be what are they going to be playing in december uh as well how long does this thing last they should
2: uh, <laughs> no, we'll <laughs> go Through we'll go through october it's yeah it's the the summer months in phoenix are baseball months right so you know
0: April through October when it's a hundred plus.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's no better time to be outside enjoying the wonders.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow you are indoors there I hope you watching those <laughs> those games in person is
0: that correct?
2: oh you know, there's definitely a dome or a uh, it's a retractable roof I
0: believe on Chase field but uh
2: <laughs> yeah they, it's definitely closed
0: I will say this about Chase field I I remember when we went the temperature during the day was like well over 100 and when we got we got into our seats we got into our seats about an hour early I think as you do you know to kind of survey the scene kind of soak in the ambiance. And about 30 minutes before the game started, they opened the roof. And I thought, well, that's insane. It's, you know, but, you know, this is the joke about dry heat. You know, people joke about dry heat, but as soon as that sun goes away, it's quite pleasant when you're watching a game in Chase Field, even with the roof open and the AC going, which there's its own ecological issues there. But nevertheless, you know, you have, you're quite comfortable. And it's a beautiful place, beautiful park, nice place to watch a game. So uh um yeah, it's just it's a enclosed stadium, but sometimes you don't need it. Yep, absolutely. So all right, well with that, we'll wrap things up. That's this is I am so psyched because I think one of the fun things about talking to other folks is being able to hear about other people's expertise. And it's always fun hearing smart people talk about smart things and interesting things. And so we're very grateful that you uh, could make it a second time here uh with us. Yes. As thank we you. say as we say, I do, Herr Doctor Bourgeois.
1: I do, Alpha's Herr Miller and Doctor Weinhold, many thanks.
2: Likewise, guys, thank you.